All right, so it was one of those great big giant um, evenings yesterday, and it was kind of an all-day event in all reality, and the truth of that um, was that it ended up being uh, and not just an a all-day event, but kind of an all-weekend event, um, but it was a lot of fun. And we got to do that in conjunction with our community as we continue to try to make a difference in our community. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter that 200, I mean, 2,093 people walked through the doors, um, three different doors, um, and we did our best to make sure they weren't the same people being counted over and over again. Um, what matters is we got to impact our community. We got to love on our community. We, we got to throw a party for our community. We got to invite people to church. And if you were at the party last night and this is your first time here, welcome. Welcome. We're wrapping up our series in the book of Nehemiah. It's an Old Testament um, um, book. Uh, he was a prophet on behalf of the kingdom of God. God spoke to him. Um, he was uh, going through a whole lot. Um, the wrap-up or the, the synopsis of uh, Nehemiah is that Jerusalem was in uh, ruins and he got to lead a group of people that rebuilt Jerusalem um, and then uh, invited people, about 50,000 of them, back into the, the region and then they drew straws to see who actually got to live inside the city. Um, so it's kind of amazing when you go down and you read that, but it's, it's it, 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 there's a lot to learn in that. And as I was going through just the things that we can look at, we realized that the Israelites rebuilt the wall at God's invitation, that um, they had the opportunity through Nehemiah to get Artaxerxes, the king um, of Babylon, to pay or to have all the governors pay for it. Um, they got about 50,000 people, Israelites, moved back into the surrounding area. Nehemiah himself ends up being made governor. He was the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, but now when things get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, he's the uh, governor of Judah, um, and he gets to be there. Um, the people have celebrated the Feast of Booths um, in a greater, in a bigger way than they ever have since the day of Joshua. So hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by since God gave them this feast that they're supposed to party, and they're supposed to just not grieve and not cry and not, it's like there's, you can only eat, drink, and be merry. That's it for seven days. And on the eighth day, um, there was a fast. And then they all came for the reading of the word in the town square. Um, as a matter of fact, they had Ezra, or they had a, 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 a thing built for Ezra to stand on, a podium um, built for Ezra to stand on, and he just read the book of the law, read the book of the law, read the book of the law. And the first day, people stood there all day long, it seemed like, just hearing somebody read the law of Moses. And then the next day, um, instead of all the people being there, the heads of families came back and it would appear that they said, listen, you have got to help us to understand what this means so that we can basically lead our families. But the heads of families came back and said, let's do this again or let's do this some more, however you want to read that piece of scripture. And they read scripture and they dove into scripture and they wrestled with scripture and they understood scripture and somebody preached to them and Sunday schooled them and encouraged them in what it meant to do this. And now we're in the book of Nehemiah, and I just want to be in uh, chapter 9, and I want to read verses 36, 37, and 38, because we're looking at this place where after they were all done sharing the scripture to the heads of the family, then all the people had um, the priests and um, the Levites and um, Ezra had them all come out and they said, we need to remake our covenant with God. And they remade a covenant with God after they had built the wall and seen God do great things. And they said, now we want to follow God. 
And so they, they said, we promise to obey and do this. And then uh, this, is, this is what they promised in the book of uh, uh, Nehemiah, beginning in chapter um, 36, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 36, it says this. But we see, the people are saying this to those that have read the law of Moses to them. But we see that we are slaves today. Even though they've rebuilt Jerusalem, King Artaxerxes, Darius, those guys still on the throne, still in charge, still the Jews are slaves to the Babylonians, okay? We are slaves today. We are slaves in the land that you, God, gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and other good thing it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the king that you have placed over top of us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please, and we are in great distress. In view of all of this, Lord, we are making a binding agreement. We are putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And that's, that's where we are in this story. These people are coming to uh, Nehemiah and they're saying, listen, in, in, in the presence of God himself, we have got to say, you have done great things and we are not living in the promises that you gave to us. We're, we're, not, excuse me, we're not living a Parisos life. We're, it's not here, God. And we recognize that we did this. We walked away from God. God didn't walk away from us. This is our fault. We accept it. We will deal with it. We understand it. And, and we are coming to say right now, we're going to follow this. We, we want you to write this down. We, the people, say, God, we will follow you and we will keep your law no matter what. And we want these people, these Levites, these keepers of the law, we want them to seal our promise today to do this thing. So to sum it up in verse 39, it says, the people of Israel... In chapter 10, verse 39, it says, The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, their new wine, their olive oil, to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests and the gatekeepers and the musicians are kept. And here's the point. We will not neglect the house of our God. Isn't that interesting? These, these Jews came and they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. And by extrapolation, what that means is we're going to make sure we keep tithing. We're going to make sure we keep serving. We're going to make sure that we keep the festivals, that we keep partying, that we keep celebrating, that we keep having fun. We're going we're gonna to see to it that we keep doing all of these things. There's a lot of things that go into that promise. Serving, teaching, worshiping, praying, tithing, feasting, fasting, sharing, sacrificing animals. There are 613 commandments that they are to keep if they are going to be Jews that keep their word and follow after God. 613 commandments. And these are the 613 commandments that Jesus talks about over and over and over in the New Testament. Not one of them will pass away until everything has been accomplished. Um, they opened up the reading of the Scripture. These are the things that they read when they opened it up. They opened it up and read Isaiah. They opened it up and read Nehemiah. They opened it up specifically and read Moses. And they said, these are the things that God said to us that we need to keep. And you and I today are beneficiaries of Jesus saying, let me sum these things up into two, two commandments for you. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. With all of you, that's, that, that's all you got. When you're playing, when you're running, when you're singing, when you're thinking, when you're learning, when you're talking, when you're sharing, when you're doing whatever you're doing, do it all unto the Lord, the scripture will tell us. And love your neighbor as yourself. And love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't mean excuse sin. It doesn't mean don't call out sin. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, have problems. It, doesn't, it just means that we love each other. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in a household where there were five of us kids, and we still love each other today, but I promise you, it doesn't take a hiccup for us as grown adults to be knocking heads with each other over the Thanksgiving dinner table. There are times when it's like, hey, you know, let's travel from all over the United States and get together for Thanksgiving. And we're like, I hope Thanksgiving only lasts a half hour to this time. You know, because we do not want to like be in the same room to get you. Come on, you know, you've got siblings like that. You're there. You're like, oh man, if he brings that up again, I swear I'm going to punch him right in the face. You know, and you're, 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 your nan or your grandma or your, your mom's going to come across the table and snatch you right up by the short hairs on the back of your head. And you know what that means too. She's going to give you the what for. Okay, we're going to have peace at my house and we're going to have, and we're a family. That just, families fight. Families bump heads. Families do things like that. But it's okay, because we're still family. And so here we have 613 commandments. And yet, it feels like when you read this story and you keep reading it, in just a few days after they make this promise, in just a few weeks, maybe a few months, they have abandoned God and they go back to the things that they were doing before they built the wall. And it's like they have exchanged their identity that is theirs. And they even said it was. You gave us this land. It's ours. It's flowing with milk and honey. We didn't build the houses. We got to have them. We didn't plant the vineyards. We got to have them. Our ancestors inherited all of this from you and when God does something really great and big in our lives and we're like yes Lord this is so awesome I'll just I'll, I'll be a monk the rest of my life because you blessed me so much and then you know a couple of days later and we're like yeah maybe not so much that right we do that we're, we're human beings we do that you know it's been preached over and over again because I'm wondering it's like you know, suddenly it feels to me like these Jews are going, ah, we is only kidding when we said that and you sealed it up and, you know, you're holding it. We is only kidding when we said that or we didn't mean all of it or a lot of times people, oh, I didn't know what it meant back then to actually have to do this. I just was, you know, making an emotional um, promise to a response. But why are people so quick to throw in the towel? That's what I was thinking about as I come to the end of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. Why is it that it is so easy for us when we're in need to say, God, we are in desperate need of you, and then when God says, let me just do something in your life, and we will testify, God's done something in our lives. And then we get a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years from that moment, and then suddenly we're back to where we were. And I just, I just was proce uh, processing that. Why are people so quick to throw in the towel? Is it selfish ambition, selfish addictions, drugs, money, spending? Is it convenience? It's just not convenient to go to church on Sunday morning. It's just not convenient to be a part of the pumpkin party. It's just not convenient to teach in the children's area. It's just not convenient. Are we looking for convenience or do we gather together because we're seeking the face of God to challenge who we are? and make us into who he wants us to be, which means we have to let go of something. We have to let go of being slaves. That's what the Israelites had to do. You've got to stop seeing yourself as a slave. You've got to start seeing yourself as children and ambassadors of God Almighty in the kingdom of heaven and saying, hmm, 
What does God want from me today? What is my mission today? What is my work today? What am I stepping into? Is it because hard work is hard? Because we are increasingly hearing, let me say it that way, people saying, you know, that, well, it's just hard. It's difficult. It's, you know, there's this thing that I keep seeing popping up on social media called quiet quitting. I don't think I've ever seen anything so blatantly unchristian. I'm going to say that. There, I said that, okay? It is unchristian. Well, no, it's not, Pastor Joe, because they hired me to do this, and that's all I'm going to do, and if they ask me to do anything else, I'm not going to do it. Okay. All right. What are you going to do when you wrestle with Jesus saying, if somebody asks you to go one mile, you go two miles with him? Do you just say, sorry, Jesus, I'm quiet quitting. Sorry, I'm not doing it. So, I'm in your face right now. Quiet, quit, or follow Jesus. You decide. But they cannot live together. No. Because Christianity is about sacrifice, hard work. Is it our immaturity and our unwillingness to grow up spiritually that keeps us from embracing the life and the words that we said to God? I've heard pastors, this is where I wanted to be, um, that talk about how we have evolved into a drive-through culture. You know, we just want everything, we want it now. Goodness sakes, I've, I've preached that message before. You know, the microwave was made so that um, women could make meals faster so that they would have more time to rest. And, uh, you know, it, it appears that we can microwave the food so we don't have to cook it, so we don't have to prepare it, it's all ready to go, so now we can do more, um, be responsible for more, put more weight on our own shoulders, be responsible, and then at the end of the day, we're absolutely exhausted because we didn't get to rest because we have a microwave. I've preached that message. But guess what? The idea that somehow we have to be in a hurry, 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 and do everything, it's not new to this generation. It, it was biblical as well. The Bible is absolutely full of people that struggled with their word. This is, a, this is an example of it. These people struggle to keep their word to God. It's full of people that are struggling in their marriages, with their family members, with their egos, with their li- uh, liberalities, with their narrow-mindedness, with their greed, with their honesty, with their attitudes. And goodness sakes, the Bible is full of people that are struggling with their violence. With their violence back in the day. Our common humanity across the board where we say this is humanity isn't permission for us to sin, but it is permission to stop beating yourself up and to get back up and to move forward. Because so many times I hear people say, well, I feel like I'm not a good mother. You're doing a great job. Are they alive? Are they fed? Are they dressed when you brought them into church? It's best if they are, but ask yourself anyway. You're doing a great job. Dad, step up. Your job is not to sit in the car and honk the horn and try to get her and the kids out faster. Your job is to pick up a child and dress it and put the clothes on it. If it doesn't match, it's okay. At this church, anyway. It is. But think about it for a second. We beat ourselves up for our failures, but the flip side of that is our failures and, and the common humanity is not permission to say, well, this is just the way we are. And that Jesus came and died for that very thing so that we could be saved from ourselves by giving ourselves up. I've come to understand there's nothing really new under the sun anymore. I think what we're seeing in our world today is just the fact that there's 7.8 billion people on the the planet now and growing faster every day. And if you pull out your phone, you can see what's going on in Ukraine right now, right this second. 
It used to be it took a couple of weeks for the message to get to you, and it hit the newspaper, and you read the newspaper. But now we see what's going on the spot. You know, there's a standoff with the police, and we, you know, it's almost like TV. We get to watch the guy get shot or arrested or, you know, you know God forbid anything worse should happen. But we see it immediately. We're in a society that is becoming numb to what's going on around us, even our own words. And so as I was thinking about wrapping up this whole series, one, number one, I was honestly thinking as I sat in my office, these are the things that go through a sick pastor's mind, okay? Today, you're not going to preach for 40 minutes. Actually, this coming Sunday, you're not going to preach for 40 minutes. It's like, yes, I think we can do this. I think. I'm not making any promises. I'm just telling you, I think I can wrap this up. But I also want to say, how do we wrap up what's going on in Nehemiah? Because as we look at it, we're looking at where our lives are in ruin. Where's your life in a ruin? As we've been doing this series on Nehemiah, is it your spiritual walk with Jesus? Is that in ruin? You're in here and you're going to church, but in all sincerity, you don't have any walk with Jesus during the week. You're punching your ticket on Sunday. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. This is a great place to be on a Sunday. I'm just saying, you know, do we come in here and are we hungry? So I began to look at this and say, let's call this a tale of two wrecks. A tale of two wrecks, you know, tale of two cities, a tale of two wrecks, okay? Nehemiah's wreck. Nehemiah's wreck is the wall, and it's all about rebuilding it. So as you rebuild something, you're bringing it back. What is it in your life that needs to be rebuilt and brought back? What is it that you gave up on? What is it that you thought that dream's never going to come true? What is it that you wanted so bad in your life that you prayed and prayed for and said, God's never going to do this for me, so I might as well just stop praying? What, 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 what is that? And it doesn't have to be mega surmountable. It doesn't have to be you know, bigger than the Eiffel Tower. I'm just saying, what is it in your life that you're saying, you know, I used to hope, dream, pray, cry out, wonder. Uh, it, maybe it was something that you have that just crashed into a, 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 a parenthetical wall. Something about your life that just crashed into a wall and you're like, man, I, I didn't see that happening. And, and maybe you can at some point say, you know what, like the, the Israelites, we're here because we didn't do it God's way. And I'm just going to be honest with you. That's why we're here. And then you look at that the way Nehemiah looked at it and said, well, let's go back to the king. Let's go back to God and ask him to rebuild the wall for us. Let's go put it back together. We're going to do our part. But we're going to ask God to do this thing. And so that's all about bring, building it and bringing it back. God moved. The wall was rebuilt, reestablished, repaired, and renewed. Because sometimes you do have to suffer a little as you reinvest in your broken situation. And you repair it and build it on, uh, with, with God's power and strength. Okay, let me, do, let me just do it again. Sometimes you suffer a little bit as you reinvest in your broken situation. And you repair it and you rebuild it. And that is the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about rebuilding what was lost. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit and I were in my office this morning, and what I was thinking when, when I was reading over that again and just preparing to come in here and meet with you is, some of you are in here, and you've got a great, or had a great relationship with God, and it's in, it's in rubble. It's dry. It feels empty. Maybe it's been poured out, and you're like, man, what, 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 what can we do here, Lord? What can we do here? And so Nehemiah, in his wreck of a wall, is saying, let's put this thing back together. But it's going to take some effort. 
It's going to take some sacrifice on your behalf. I don't doubt that trying to build a wall with a sword in one hand and a brick in another and putting it in the wall, it, okay, my shoulder, I don't know why I've been giving me a little bit of problem here, you know, and I'm just, I know it's old age, but, um, you know, it's been, it's been doing that thing, you know what I mean? But it's one of those things where you do the same thing over and over again, over and over again. Yes, that muscle gets bigger, but man, it starts to hurt a little bit. You know, you want to take a break, you want to do that. And I'm just thinking that somewhere in building that wall and holding a sword, that, you know, it, it starts to hurt. It's kind of like holding your, your cell phone and trying to do your life. You know, you're trying to, you know, pay attention. You've got the FOMO going on. You know, you don't want to miss out. And so you're just like, oh, I got to know because they said this. And I got to, you know, I'm gonna, I, want, I want to be able to talk about that when I'm sitting with my friend that they said that and I saw it. You know, and, and somewhere in there we start to hurt a little bit. But at the end of the day, here's the deal. The idea that we want God to rebuild our lives and our brokenness without any sacrifice from us is absolute foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. I don't see very often where God said, even God, Jesus, paying his own taxes. When Peter says to him, listen, what do we do about our taxes? And Jesus said, I want you to go fishing. You and I both know that in the world inside of our brain where Jesus exists in, in history, he could have turned around and gone, ha, drachma! And there could have been money in his hand to pay the taxes. But instead, what did he do? He said, Peter, I want you to go catch the first fish you can, gut that sucker, and then pull the coins out of that and go pay our taxes. Now, that is, I mean, just a gross way to pay your taxes, okay? Because he didn't tell him to wash it first. And, you know, there's pastors out there that are like, let me tell you what that means about you paying your taxes. Get them all smeary and dirty and then turn them into that evil government. Whatever. Pay your taxes and let's get on with life, okay? But here's the deal. When Jesus was going to have Peter pay their taxes, he gave Peter a job to do it. He gave him work. He didn't say, go sit on the rock and money will fall from heaven. He said, you know what you're good at? Fishing. Peter, you're good at fishing. Go catch a fish. Go get a fish. And that fish that you catch, I'm going to do something miraculous with. But it's a partnership. It's something together. Same thing with Nehemiah's wall. Nehemiah cried and whined, and it's like, the wall is broken down. And God said, you know what you're good at, Nehemiah? Leadership. Go to the king, get everybody wound up and excited, and rebuild the wall. And I'll have somebody else pay for it. See how he does that? He didn't, free, he didn't say, go tell those guys that are going to pay for it to rebuild your wall, and sit back in there and say, my God made you do it. He said, you go lead the people to rebuild the wall. I'll supply you with materials that those guys are going to have to pay for, the ones that are going to come against you. See? Rebuild, reestablish, repair takes sacrifice on your behalf. It does. The other wreck that I was thinking about was a sermon that I preached a couple of weeks ago up in northern Indiana, and it just captured my heart <clears throat> as I was driving five and a half hours up to northern Indiana and thinking it through, processing it. I'd written it all out. I sat down, I prayed over it, fasted over it, and then it was just like, okay, this is what you want me to say, Lord. But as I was coming back, the Lord said, I want you to, this is going to be part of VCCR's relationship too. And so I thought, well, I'll preach it in November. But I, I felt like the Lord said, no, no, tale of two wrecks. Nehemiah's wreck was the wall. That was the wall. Now I want to talk about Paul's wreck for a couple of minutes. See, Paul, 
is probably the greatest missionary that we've ever seen. You know, he's in the scripture. His name was Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul. And he was a great Pharisee. Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. Okay, the best of the best of the best, better than the super apostles, he says. Okay, that's what Paul, uh, Saul, Saul would say. Okay, and he was, he had zeal for God that you and I probably would hunger for. He wanted God in his life. He wanted everything God had for him. So what he did is he went around and he persecuted these people that were following after this Jesus Christ. And he, and he put them in jail. He separated families. He stole their land. He took their houses, gave it to the church. He had people killed. And then one day, Lord met him and he got saved. And whoa, suddenly Saul, who was persecuting us, is one of us. And we know him now as Paul. So he's on this missionary journey. He takes two or three of them, and he travels all around the Mediterranean. He's planting churches and chasing after God. He's getting beaten and, and left for dead. He's getting stoned and, stoned and left for dead. Um, he's getting chased out of towns. He's getting chased into towns. I mean, it, it, it's, just, it's just Paul. And then Paul, at some point in his life, decides, you know what? His greatest desire is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Caesar himself in Rome. He wants to go to Rome. Now, he's a, he's a Roman citizen. So Paul gets sideways with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There's a riot. Um, he gets arrested. Um, they're going to deal with it right there on the spot. But Paul says, hey, I appeal to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. And because he's a Roman citizen, they have to take him to Rome to stand in front of Caesar and say, listen, I didn't cause that riot. But that wasn't his plan. He was going to get stood in front of Caesar and saying, this man caused a riot, and they were going to, Caesar was going to say, Paul, what happened? He was going to say, let me tell you about my Jesus. Because that's what his goal was. But on the way to Rome, when he finally was arrested and he was on the way, they put him on a ship, and he was sailing around to Rome, and he passed by, and it was not the time for sailing. He tried to tell the Romans, don't sail now. It's going to be bad. It ended up bad. They ended up in a nor'easter. It was horrible. Things were bad. They were chucking the, the grain over the side of the boat. It was full of grain. Um, the Romans were really dumb in that they shipped a lot of sand from Egypt um, to Rome to, to refill the floor after they murdered all the people in the Colosseums and the fights and the gladiators and all that stuff. They were constantly putting new sand back in there so it wasn't gross and nasty looking. But they forgot that if you only ship sand in from um, um, Egypt, then you're going to end up with no food. And they literally were beginning to starve themselves to death so that they could play the games. And so here's a ship that's full of grain, and that grain would have been gold. And so as the storm hits and the ship is being battered all over, there's like 247 people on this boat, okay? And they start chucking the grain overboard, overboard. Most of the people on that boat were prisoners, um, Roman prisoners being held by um, Roman soldiers. And they get to the place where it's just going bad. So here's Paul's wreck. Acts 27, when daylight came, all night this storm was destroying this ship, and Paul said, don't you let people leave this ship. They have to stay on the boat. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. They cut loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time they untied the ropes that held the rudders straight. Then they hoisted up the foresail. That's not foresail. Don't say foresail. It's forceful, okay? 
say foresail. So they hoisted up the foresail, and the wind came in and hit that thing, and they made for the beach because it was pushing them right into that bay. But the ship struck a sandbar before it got up onto the beach, and it ran aground. And the bow stuck fast, and it would not move. The stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. So can you imagine a ship that can hold all the grain, all the cargo, 247 people, and there it is stuck in the sand, and the storm is still, it's a gray sky. They didn't wake up to sunshine. It's a gray sky, and that storm is so bad, it's smashing against the back end of that ship, and it is literally crumbling it right out from underneath of them. The, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, prevent any of them from escaping. escaping. The reason being is, if the soldiers lost a prisoner, it was life for life in the Roman world. If we put you in charge of a criminal and he gets away, we cut your head off. The, the criminal's free to go. Somebody died for the crime. It wasn't the guy it was supposed to be. Doesn't matter. And so these guys were going to kill all the prisoners so they could say, listen, we can account for every single one of them. Okay? Um, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, the guy in charge, and he kept them from carrying out their plan. As a matter of fact, he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land, swim to land. The rest were given, uh, will get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone did, in fact, reach land safely. So God plans a means by which Paul gets to see his dream come true, but in a manner that he didn't think it would happen. So many of us want God to answer our prayer, but we think God's going to do it our way. God, Paul's been faithful. Even when he was killing Christians, he was trying to protect God. Paul's been on a missionary journey three times for God. God's had, Paul's had problems with his best friend Barnabas and also with Barnabas' nephew, John Mark. Paul was stoned, mocked, harassed, and left for dead. Paul stayed the course, wanted to go to Rome, preached to um, Caesar. Paul started a riot. Paul thought he was going to die. Paul got on a boat. Paul told the soldiers not to sail. They sailed anyway. Paul had a dream. God said, don't let any of the soldiers or anyone leave the boat. The boat was destroyed on a sandbar. Paul told them to jump in the sea. Paul preached to Caesar. So what does that have to do with anything? Conventional wisdom will not accomplish the will of God in either of these situations. It just won't happen. On the one hand, God wants to rebuild something in your life that maybe you've given up on. This is what I believe with all of my heart. You are in here because God wants to rebuild something in your life. Your relationship to God needs rebuilding. Revelation, uh, Revelation 2 says, um, God is speaking to the Ephesians, and he says, See how far you have fallen. Do what you did at first. Now, I'm just talking about your relationship to Jesus. When you first sender, sent, uh, surrendered your life to Jesus... What were the things that you did? I know in my own life it wasn't hard to spend time reading my Bible. It just wasn't. I know in my own life it wasn't hard to invite somebody to church. I know in my own life it wasn't hard to talk to somebody about Jesus. I know in my own life those things were not difficult. But the more I let the world seep in, the more I'm seeing my relationship to Jesus crumble and so we have to go back, I believe the Lord is saying, to you personally and do the things 
that you did when you first surrendered your life to Jesus. Paul said to the church in Ephesus, see how far you've fallen. Not how awful you've become, but how far you've gotten away from the priority of the kingdom of God in your life, in your spending, in your language, in your eating and drinking habits. Look how far you have left Jesus. And then you wonder where Jesus is. He says, go back and do the things that you did at first. Go do that. Go do that. On the other hand, Nehemiah, we rebuild. You're in this room right now, and I want to encourage you in this. On the other hand, from Paul's story of how things come crashing in and crashing in, and you're hanging on, you're, hanging, you're trying to hang on to the kingdom of God, and you're trying to hang on to unchristian relationships, unchristian activities, um, things that are, are not sin but aren't getting you closer to Jesus, and you're trying to hang on to that, and you're standing on that boat, and the back end of that boat is being crumbled by God himself. Paul didn't understand. I, I, I mean, I think he was one that could foresee, hey, I'm chasing after, I'm going to Rome. I think I'm going to get a shot at this. But that wasn't the way he thought it was going to happen. Put me on a boat and then crush the boat out from underneath me. And some of you are in here, and that's what's on your mind. If God is leading me, then why are things crumbling around me? I want you to hear this from the Lord himself. Jump. Jump. Stop trying to stay where you are when that's where you're just passing through. You can't cling to yesterday when it's being eroded out from underneath of you by God himself if you're going to reach tomorrow. You have to jump. Imagine all of those 247 lives standing on that boat, stuck in a sandbar. The waves are crashing up against it. And the fact of the matter is, Paul and the centurion are saying, jump! And you're like, but I don't know what will happen. I'm, I'm just going to tell you, that's a little inconsequential to God. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. But he's trying to see you arrive at your goal as you encourage and enhance the kingdom of God. Paul saved 247 people on that ship by leaving. And some of you in here need to hear that word. It's time for you to leave something that's just eroding out from underneath you. There are things in your life that you need to rebuild. And there are things in your life that God is saying, jump and let go of those friends, let go of those activities, let go of those readings, let go of what you're listening to, let go of what you're eating, snorting, or shooting. Let go of the partying and the drunkenness. Because I have something in store for you. And here's the deal. You have to be discerning. You have to be discerning as to what needs to be rebuilt. And it's not about convenience. It's about integrity. Your word, what needs to be rebuilt, 
and what is it it's time for you to let go of? Those are the two wrecks that I wanted to wrap this up with. In the book of Romans, it says you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Maturity is going to be knowing which one you're facing right now. Are you facing the leaving or are you facing the rebuilding? And it's up to you to discern that. And it's not, like I said, about what's convenient or what it is that you specifically, personally want to happen. Therefore, I'm giving you permission to make it happen. I'm telling you, God wants to do something in your life. And when God told, told Paul, don't let those people off this ship until you get to the time when I erode it out from under them and you tell them to jump. Okay. And then Paul, or God told Nehemiah, listen, I'm going to rebuild this wall. You're going to be my guy, and I'm going to make somebody else pay for it. But you have to sacrifice. You have to do the sacrifice. Both of them had to let go of something in order to do that. And I believe that's what's going on in your life right now. So today I just want to let you know these people are here to pray for you because you know that you need prayer for letting go or for rebuilding. Jump or rebuild. Sacrifice or just throw yourself at the mercy of God himself and the ocean. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you right now. We thank you for these stories. We thank you for the mission of Nehemiah. We thank you for the word of Paul. We thank you for the stories of each of those that bring us to this place right now, that we are at a place of discerning which is the thing that you're asking us. And we know what it is, God. We know. With integrity, God, let us own it. Let us hear you say jump and not worry if we don't know how to swim. You'll catch us. Here, let us hear you say rebuild. And it doesn't matter that we don't know how. You'll lead us. Just let it be you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to your feet. These people are up here to pray for you. If this, if this is resonating with you and it's, it's making a lot of sense, do me a favor. Listen, just come up here and let them pray for you. Just step up here and say, I just need you to pray for me while we're singing this song. Okay?